five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. Did you know you can use satellite imagery to make agriculture more efficient and hence help feed the world? You bet, space can do that too. My guest on this episode is Max Guldi, CEO and co-founder of German startup Constellar, and he will explain how the infrared remote sensing satellite constellation does that. Please enjoy my conversation with Max. Hey everybody, today I'm joined by Max Guldi from Constellar. Welcome Max, how are you? Um, I'm doing well, how are you doing Rafael? Very nice having me, thanks. Oh, it's my pleasure. And actually, I was just welcoming you, and then I realized I'm actually not sure whether it's is it Constellar or Constella or how do you pronounce it? Whatever you like it to be, but it's Constellar. That's at least what we say. Constellar. Okay, now we know. Perfect. So why don't you start off as always and give us the two minute or one minute, if you want, elevator pitch on Constellar. Okay. Okay, so what Constellar does in a nutshell is that we would like to provide precise and global temperature data for a growing planet. So by means of a microsatellite constellation, we will map and monitor the infrared spectrum, so the, the temperature of our planet's surface. And this is incredibly important to enable smart farming on a global planetary scale. So basically, by looking at temperature, you can directly assess the water need and other stress factors for plants. And this enables you to drastically reduce the amount of resources you need in order to obtain the same or even more crop yield. And the reason we're doing this is because we see a trend in rise of uh, demand for food at the, uh, the one hand. On the other hand, we have climate change and we have a dwindling of resource. And to match this impending food gap and basically prevent a global agriculture breakdown, we need to change something. And that's what Consular is doing. Okay, and can you go a little bit more into detail on this, what you call smart farming? Is that the same as, as precision farming? And is that something that people are already doing right now in some other way? Or is that like a relatively recent development? So um, I'll tell you how we understand it. Precision farming basically means that you don't treat fields at a whole anymore, uh, but you treat them localized. So you try to assess what part of the field or part of the plot would need what resources to best grow. And then you apply it uh, localized and uh, obviously if you have geolocalized data this can this can help you so when we're talking about smart farming it's not so much about the execution of then having your tractor or having your your instrument uh, going over your field and applying uh, but it's about gathering this information and making a smart decision on where to put what 
So we would be targeting smart farming companies which are operating in the precision farming market. But smart farming, precision farming, I would claim it's not the same, but it's basically under the hood of agriculture 4.0. And what we are doing very differently is that imagine the scale. If we talk about global food security, we're talking about a global scale. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we have around 1.5 billion hectares of global agriculture land. Mm -hmm. So how do you make smart decisions on that scale? There are obviously a lot of difficult decisions to make and a lot of interesting approaches to take. And the most common approaches are that you're flying drones over your fields or you're installing in situ sensors on your field. But to be globally scalable, you need something which is also operating on the global scale. And their satellites are the ideal tool. So why are we not using the infrared spectrum so far? And what's the advantage of the infrared spectrum for smart farming uh, compared to what's out there? So basically in, in 1973, um, I think it was the, the Americans, they, they figured out it is a very good idea to basically check out some competitors, uh, countries, uh, 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 and you can imagine who that could have been, uh, weed yield and crop yield to understand if there might be a potential for tension from, let's say, uh, a suffering food supply. And uh, what they developed is a methodology how you can, using optical, visual and near-infrared um, images to get an idea of the crop health and get an idea of the yield. And this was the first time space-borne instruments were used to get a yield estimation and to try to correlate, in this case, its physiology, so leaf color, with yield. What we are doing differently here is uh, basically the same technology, so it's nearly 50 years old, is still used today. Obviously, we have high resolution spatially as well as temporally, so we, our Planet Labs is looking at um, basically the whole globe assuming there were no clouds, uh, at least once a day. And this is still the, the status quo of what we're doing. So we're trying to derive what the plant needs from the color of the leaf. And if the plant starts to wither or the leaf color is changing, then we change something. The problem is that this process is hellishly slow. It can take days to weeks until these physiological changes do manifest in the end. If you would look at the temperature instead, what you're looking is at, let's say, the, the thermal signature of the plant, and you look at its transpiration instead. If, for example, if there's a lack of water, the plant can't transpire any water anymore. So the gating cells, the stomata on the lower side of the leaves are closing, and you immediately see a change in the temperature signature. And depending on what type of cause you have, it could be a fungus which is sitting on there, it could be a lack of nutrition, it could be a lack of water, you get a different signature and you get it immediately. So by looking in the thermal infrared on these plants, you have an immediate and very robust way of um, assessing what the plant really needs and not only assessing it once it's too late. So two weeks after, oh, could, hmm, I should have watered the plant, but basically knowing it now. And so it's basically a correlation uh, between temperature and sort of water content and hence the plant's needs for yeah. variation. Um, in a way. So what you the, the, the variable you're after is so-called evapotranspiration. And that's now, now we're getting very technical. Evapotranspiration is the loss of water to the atmosphere. So it's the, the mix between evaporation and transpiration. Transpiration is what the, the plants are, and, and also animals and us. So if, if you go for a run, then you're, you'll transpire um, and you're losing uh, water to the atmosphere. And on the other hand, it's what the soil is losing. And uh, that's evaporation. And if you combine those two, you have evapotranspiration. And this is most robustly derived from temperature. But currently, there's simply there's no temperature data available, which is comparable and is on the let's say relevant spatial and temporal scales and globally affordable. I'm not a farmer, and I'm not even anywhere close to being a you know an expert on plants. I'm just <laughs> neither am I a farmer. <laughs> we're going to talk about that in a second, Max, which is basically how you came up with that idea. But no, I wanted to ask: is, isn't there going to be differences by plants? I'm sort of like thinking like rice is going to be different from I don't know like a cactus or something. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, no, it, it is very different. And th that's about the differentiation I, I do between plants. Either it, it has spikes, that must be a cactus. If it's small, it's, well, it's some plant. If it's large, it must be a tree. <laughs> so, but yes, uh, it, depending on what kind of plant you have, yes, obviously they're, they're very large difference. It depends on the size of the, uh, uh, well, let's say the, the, the canopy coverage. Um, it depends on very many different variables and even depends on humidity, on wind speed and other things. For that reason, we're not going to provide the full agriculture service because there are companies which can do this a lot better than we can. But what we are doing is we're providing the foundation data for those companies to make their products a lot better. Um, yeah, it does take a lot of research. Uh, luckily, since we have thermal data since uh, nearly as long as we have optical data, we also have a very mature research body on how to then derive this and how to translate these data then into insights uh, for the farmers. And I'm pretty confident that there's enough knowledge out there to actually do this. And we're having first pilots and trials to see how effective it actually is. Okay, so the, the question I want to come back to after you have just told us that basically you classify plants into plants with and without spikes. <laughs> I, I, that... I, should, I should have not said that, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't worry, it's only going to be thousands of people who heard this. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, is like, how did you come up with this? How did you come up with the idea to basically start a company that's that's using satellite-based infrared to help smart farming and yeah, where's yeah. that coming from? Yeah, so um, initially we didn't want to start a company. The, the company was actually, maybe that's not smart to say, but it was actually fake. It was just to make our proposal more attractive. So, but let's go back to uh, 2017. I'm, first of all, I'm a physicist. I'm not a space engineer, aerospace engineer, anything. Uh, I applied at the position of mission scientist at the Fraunhofer Institute in, at one of the Fraunhofer Institutes in Freiburg. I'm, I'm still a bit curious why they took me as a mission scientist, whereas I was clearly not really qualified for that position, but they nevertheless didn't know it was good for me. So then I dived into all kinds of space topics, always with the perspective of a physicist who actually did microscopy. So I was moving from with very high speed from the microscopic, uh, microscopic scale to the macroscopic scale. At, at some point, we came across a challenge. It was a Copernicus Masters challenge, and it was uh, from ESA. And they basically said, design us the best and most impactful mission for below 1 million euro. And if you do so, well, you, first of all, you get the 1 million euro. And secondly, you get a free launch. We had no idea what this mission could be. So we sat together and said, okay, what are the most pressing issues? And we sat together with, with um, colleagues from OHP, for example, and others, and we're trying to figure out what could be this mission. So we're burning for, for this challenge. It was just was super fun having basically no idea about entering this this challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, then, then we came up with, okay, what's really missing in the spectrum and would be really useful for food security and a lot of other topics too, urban heat islands, forest fires, uh, fire risk estimation, coal fires. And we identified more than 30 use cases, not at this first day, uh, but then during the time. And uh, we started writing a proposal. Uh, while we, we wrote the proposal, uh, we apparently solved a couple of problems which are not solved in terms of thermal infrared imaging at this point. So in order to increase our chances to win, we even claimed we'd found a company, <laughs> which we clearly had no intention to do. Because why would you found a company if it was so comfortable being with a Fraunhofer and just doing your research? Mm -hmm. um, we were then pretty surprised when Isa called us and said we were uh, amongst the three finalists. So we didn't win in the end. We didn't win the million. We didn't win the free launch, but we are triggered. We then entered an accelerator program, still not taking this very seriously in terms of company founding. What then happened is that I got really, really frustrated because this, this fantastic idea was simply not resonating uh, neither with the government nor with other funding institutions. And they all said, yes, yes, call us when you have done it, but not before. And nobody was willing to invest in pilots, in technology development, all these things which need to be done. 
And then the only way which was left open was actually founding a company. We went into a Fraunhofer accelerator and we said, okay, this is an accelerator specifically for scientists, actually specifically for risk-averse scientists from Fraunhofer as we were. We said, okay, let's take this 13 weeks time, let's really assess it carefully and let's see if there is the slim chance that actually funding a founding company might be a good idea, which we didn't believe at the time. And it was about 30 minutes into the first session of this accelerator. They were all shouting, let's found the company, let's found the company. <laughs> and uh, since then, we've, we've been, yeah, we've been pretty successful, this Concilla. And so you're saying it, it wasn't resonating with, with, with a bunch of, of stakeholders. Well, of course, the, the most important question is, is it, is it resonating with the customers? And so how has that process been of customer discovery? And I guess the first question there would be just to check who are exactly your customers? Is it actually the farmers? Or you mentioned there's also like a, um, a sort of smart farming expert companies in between. It, it's definitely not the farmers. Um, so the, the farmers, they will benefit from it. But um, as you as you might know, the agriculture sector is, is rather fragmented. So going from farmer to farmer and explaining what temperature data can do for him or her would not be the way to go. With the Sentinels, so for nearly a decade now, there's more and more data available. Yeah, there, there are more and more companies sprouting, which are becoming experts and already are experts in how to use earth observation data, remote sensing data, for the good of agriculture and, and many other things too. This is a ideal launchpad for such for such data. So what we would basically do is complementing this data set, giving this data set to um, companies which are already providing insights to the farmer. Maybe rolling it up from the other side is, let's say you have a farmer, Hans, obviously a German farmer, I, I would guess, and Hans is looking at his fields. And let's say there's 10 hectares or 100 hectares or, or how much or how much fields Hans has. If he wants to use precision farming, let's say he just bought a nice tractor from John Deere or, or Klaas or something, and he would really like to go into precision farming because he believes and he sees from his colleagues that's actually having a, a positive impact. So he's not going to do all this data crunching, number crunching by himself, but he's going to companies which are offering services. So he's basically in a web browser marking his fields and saying, those are my fields. I would like to have advice. What's the nitrogen uh, content of these plants? What is the water stress of these plants? And so on and so forth. And then they deliver him day by day, for example, irrigation advice. They tell you, okay, Hans, tomorrow is going to be a dry day. So try to, and there's a lot of this and that. So try to irrigate in the morning and this and that amount. And be aware that in this part of the field, there's a fungus outbreak, which shows from this and that signature. Okay, so Hans is doing this. And these companies, they rely on data from all kinds of types of data initially, but more and more on satellite data. Actually, the market is growing, also the number of companies growing at about 20% per year. So there's amazing market growth. And those companies are our target customers. So we are selling new and better data, data currently not available uh, to those companies to really, let's say, boost their products. Okay, you, you just um, relieved my fears here. I thought you were literally going to to Hans and telling me, hey, Hans, I've got like data from space and you have to become a data scientist, which probably <laughs> wouldn't work so well. So when you go to these, uh, let's call them intermediaries for for the lack of a better yeah. word. Um, we call them VASPs or value-added service providers. That, that sounds much better than intermediaries, value-added service providers. Sort of like, what is the business model with them? Like, for example, do they pay by like sort of per acre or how does that work? Um, yes, that, that's pretty much it. Um, so if you if you look at the earth observation sector, um, I think the business models are partially still stuck somewhere in, in the 90s. Uh, but the most common one is that you're basically uh, paying per area you're using and then you're basically paying per image. We're currently trying out different different things, uh, subscription models that you basically uh, just pay per time and, and area. But it might turn out that the, these models and we, we know some companies which try to establish these models before us. 
and they were not super successful. It might be that those models are not working as well as the classical one. We're basically saying, okay, you want to have data for, I don't know, two square kilometers, then you pay for two square kilometers. You want to have this data 10 times uh, over the next, let's say, two months, then you pay uh, 10 times the amount. Well, you basically buy, uh, buy 100 square kilometers, and then every time you basically look at something, it's going to be deducted from this from this kind of credit. You, you brought up a point I wanted to ask about anyway, so um, sort of 10 times per month, uh, for example. I mean, how often does it make sense for, for smart farming? How often should farmers look at it? And then, so that, that's what we, I guess, call temporal resolution. And then the other question yeah. would be on the, the spatial resolution that, that makes sense for this use case. This, again, very much depends on, on what you're looking at um, and, and where you are. Uh, so the, the, first of all, we have to differentiate between when are you actually getting data? And that's not the same as when the satellites are flying out because it might be cloudy. Um, so let's assume we have in general uh, 50% cloud coverage over uh, mid-Europe. Um, then the, the threshold is somewhere between two and three days that you need uh, data, maybe maybe two and four days, every two to four days. And that's really need, needing insights. So the models are good enough to cope with not having data or using other data in between those intervals. Um, and then if you, if you have the 50% cloud coverage, this translates to, okay, I need actually every one to two days uh, I need an overfly, an overpass. If you're going to the um, uh, to the equatorial regions, obviously that you have 80 or 90 percent cloud coverage, um, so you have to be there in the morning, and you have um, you need relatively high revisit times. So um, that means even if you have daily revisit time at the equator, you might only get one, let's say, useful image um, a week, and th that's the absolute threshold of of being able to use that. So that's about the the temporal resolution. In terms of spatial resolution, again, there there's some things which are more homogeneous. So if you're looking at corn or maize or wheat, which do not necessarily require very high spatial resolution compared to, for example, if you if you have an orchard or if you're um, looking at uh, at wine and grapes. So there's a, uh, a pretty good uh, good study from Tobias Hank and um, Heike Bach, what the spatial resolution for LST or land surface temperature monitoring should be. And um, basically uh, for some of the things, uh, you need 10 meter. That's something we, we cannot do. So we would be at 50 meters. But for most of the things, somewhere between 50 and 100 meters would be okay. However, it again very much depends where you are. If you are in Bavaria or if you are in somewhere in Germany where the average field size is a bit more than a hectare, then you only get very a very small amount of pixels and data points basically for your field, especially if it's if it's not a not necessarily a rectangular or, uh, yeah. or square-shaped field. If you are in the US or in Australia, or if you at some places. Uh, uh, where the fields are large and average, and obviously your uh, resolution can be uh, a lot more coarse. And if in Africa, then the average field size is is tiny, and then maybe 10 meters would even be too coarse. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about the same sort of comparison, sort of the the, the Hans farm in Germany versus the other place I know agriculture well is in Brazil. And like Brazil, you have some monoculture farms which are like bigger than some small countries. Yes. <laughs> so, which I guess is another interesting question. Is there any sort of um, use case in terms of like uh, crop and or in terms of geography that kind of makes sense to to do first? Or do you just leave that up to your value-added resellers? Yeah. Maybe we should approach this from the other angle. Where is it needed the most? And that's the angle we are coming from. Obviously, we need to make money, and that, that's clear. But also the question is, where is the impact the largest? We are we are talking a lot to companies which are in Europe, but which are actually looking at fields which are not in Europe, which are done in sub-Saharan Africa and South America or, or India. This should be where the focus lies, because by 2050, about 60% of all global food will be produced in sub-Saharan Africa and South America. So 
I'm very keen on looking at those use cases first. That's the nice thing about data. Once you have recorded data um, uh, of a certain area, and then uh, if I record something in in um, in Africa, it doesn't uh, hinder me to record more data in Europe. So there's there's no competition in that sense. Then we'll simply see uh, whether customers would like to have their data recorded. But ideally, it is in those regions which which need it most. And this sort of needing the most, or and and then the next step, sort of like. Uh where you can have the most benefits. What are the, I guess, the metrics you use? So if it's about, again, it seems to be basically about irrigation. I guess you could measure that by, you know, um, you know, liters of water saved per acre, or you could measure it by like you use the same amount of water, but does it maybe increase the crop yield by X percent? Is there any particular way you look at it? The crop yield seems to be the logic way and the intuitive way to do it. However, this is very hard because crop yield strongly depends on, well, simply the year. Maybe sometimes you have a good year, sometimes you don't have a good year. Sometimes there's more rain, less rain. So uh, crop yield is is not very constant, um, at least not on the small scale. The, the metric we're looking at is actually the, the saved water. And they're indicators that, for example, if, if you would use, let, let's start again with the, the, the visual near infrared data. So uh, we talk to companies which are using near infrared, sometimes even shortwave infrared data, and they can usually save up to 10% of the water. So usually you need about to 5,500 tons of water per year per hectare. So it's it's quite a bit of water. It's it's a European average, uh, actually a, a southern European average. There might be areas where it's a bit larger. If you're in Norway or if you, uh, I grew up in Schleswig-Holstein and in Germany, that you probably need a lot less. Actually, sometimes you need to pump water from the fields. In in this case, what what you would do is if you would temperature data, you can save up to 40% of the water uh, without losing any crop even. Uh, so there are studies depending again on the crop. Um, uh, you can gain five to 15, five to 18% of crop yield just by watering correctly and giving the plant less stress. Not yet accounting for that you get this information earlier. So the, the plant might not even feel a lot of stress Uh, because you get the information before the plants are withering or the, the, the leaf colors change. And if you do a little, so we have done little impact studies, obviously those are, those are very simple, uh, well, yeah, simple yet. But if you would assume that you can apply temperature-based, doesn't have to be our data, but this temperature-based uh, water need assessment on about 30% of globally irrigated fields, so not the non-irrigated fields, just those which are already irrigated, you save enough water to increase crop yield by 7% globally if you reapply this water to the field next door, which is not irrigated. Obviously, there's a transition process, uh, Just, but just to give you the idea of the potential. So 7% of crop yield more would mean that you can sustainably feed, without more resources, nearly 600 million people. If you now say, okay, that, that's interesting, and if you now imagine that African farmers or European farmers, whoever, um, actually have benefit from using less resources and increasing the yield on the other hand, You can then make an assumption about the benefit, and it's somewhere in the region of 150 billion US dollars per year. So that, that's the power of infrared featured uh, smart irrigation. These numbers you've mentioned now, whether it's on the water savings or the crop yield increase, is it sort of, let's say, models, or have there actually been sort of controlled studies of the kind you mentioned as like you have a field of Hans on one side who's using uh, temperature data and um, uh, Fritz next to Hans, and he doesn't use infrared data? So uh, this, is, this is our model for the maximum potential days. Um, so this is, this is not based on a study, but obviously the individual numbers are based um, on studies. So how much water can you save if you use temperature indicators on the field? The difficulty here is that the data we are looking at simply, or we, we would like to provide, simply doesn't exist yet. 
and, mm. and that's the difficulty. So you have to find uh, alternative ways to record this data of which you believe which are at least equally well equipped to do the job. So there's there's still a bit of uncertainty in there. I mean, we're working on, on different pilots. Hopefully by the end of the year, I could answer this question with, more, with, with let's say, more substance. But it's, so this is an interesting question. So I understand, obviously, that your own constellation is not up there and hence uh, this data doesn't exist. But is there maybe, you know, um, have there been studies using, um, I think there are some infrared satellites obviously up there like, like Landsat and so forth. Or I guess you could these types of sensors on other platforms like drones or aircraft or maybe even towers, I don't know, like have there been studies using these other platforms or the other satellites which exist? So there are actually there, there are tons of studies with Landsat and uh, even Meteosat. The problem is that uh, with existing platforms, let's take Landsat 8. Landsat 8, I think, is the one of the most used thermal infrared sensors because that's, it has a 100 meter resolution, but it only comes by every 16 days. So if you if you account for 50% cloud coverage, this means that under normal conditions, you would get one image a day. And this is way too long to actually make to direct timely on any change. So for that reason, those platforms, as far as we are concerned and we know from our customers, are not used. They, they would love to use it, but it's simply not useful. They're not fit for purpose. It doesn't mean that it's a bad sensor. It's a fantastic sensor, but they're simply not fit for purpose in terms um, of agriculture. So what people are using is Sentinel-3 and MODIS, which come at one square kilometer resolution. And obviously you can imagine that's a whole lot, lot mm. happening within one square kilometer. Sure. So it's not going to be a homogeneous way to do this. There have been um, studies with airplanes. There have been studies uh, with drones. However, most of the drone studies are not using thermal infrared, but using similar sensors because they're more, more, more cheap, lighter. Um, and let's say less technically difficult uh, than the thermal infrared, which are also in the visible and in, in infrared. There are studies with cameras, which are positioned stably and fixed in, in some position on some on some tower. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but the easiest way to do it is basically getting the temperature from the plant by sticking something like a thermometer uh, next to the plant and then applying water depending on what the therm uh, thermometer says. So kind of an mm -hmm. IoT solution. Which, which is difficult to scale globally, but which gives you a very easy and good idea of what it could be. Oh, that's funny. And that way you could end up competing, I guess, with the sort of like satellite um, IoT providers. Yeah, in a, in a way, this this could be competition. Um, I, I think, however, that if you imagine um, now, now Hans, Hans, let's say, is maybe still a bit skeptical. So there's a certain resistance to momentum, I guess, in the agriculture sector, which is completely understandable because uh, your livelihood depends on it if, if you do the right decision or not. Uh, let's say Hans thinks about, ah, do I really want to use this IoT sensor in my field? Then he thinks about things like, ah, well, it's at some point it's going to get in the way of harvest, so I need to uh, remove it again at some point. What's the initial cost? And then he thinks, oh, okay, a couple of thousand euro to build it up. Uh, so I, I would probably not to put it on every single field, so I don't put three per hectare, but I probably put one of these weather stations for, for 10 hectares, just to get an idea. Uh, he has to, to buy the, uh, the software or there are licensing fees and all these things. So there's a huge upfront cost and actually a huge financial risk for Hans. If we had the opportunity, and that's what, what we see, uh, and, and companies which are doing this are, are growing massively, if, if you can remove the upfront cost and any maintenance uh, or anything, which uh, any hardware in the field, and suddenly Hans says, oh, look, something like 30 or 50 euro per month uh, or even per year per hectare, I can really look at my fields, and that's that's not a bit risk I'm taking. If I see after one one uh, one year that it's a good deal, then I keep it. And otherwise, well, I might have lost a few a few hundred uh, euros, but not a few thousand euros, and that's something I'm going for. So I think also this the kind of threshold until when or um, uh, from when farmers would actually be using this technology will be massively lowered if you use, let's say, uh, non-in-situ technology, if you do, uh, use remote sensing technology. And I think it's a big advantage, and that's where 
the industry is, is heading to. So if it, let's say, like you said, it may end up costing the farmer like a few hundred dollars or a few hundred euros per year. I just realize I'm such a city boy, so to say, that I actually, I really have no clue about farming. Like what kind of like, how much money does that represent in terms of as, like if you look at the cost per hectare of your product, how does that compare to sort of like the sort of revenue per hectare? Is it like a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage? Is it I don't know. How does it compare? So, um, we, we have to be aware that there's someone in between still. Uh, if we take companies which are basing their service only on visual imagery, they're usually taking between 25 and, and 50 euro per hectare per year of, of area they're looking at. And they're using Sentinel data or if you go for the higher pricing product, they may, might be using spot data. And this is this is only a fraction of the revenue. So if you look, for example, at, at winter wheat uh, in Spain, and I have to to see if the, the numbers are, are adding up correctly. You can, um, if you irrigate the field, uh, you get between three and four tons of, of wheat per hectare. This this is something which is currently corresponding uh, between to something between 600, 800 euro per hectare. So if you're spending uh, 50 hectare, uh, 50, 50 euro, and uh, your, your revenue is somewhere like, let's say 700, it is a fraction of it, but it's not like a, a 1%, or well, it's more like five to 10%. However, um, at the same time, I, I, I must say that If you include, if you start irrigating a field in Spain, you are increasing the yield by a factor of six if you do it correctly. That the largest cost factor actually is water. So if you at the same time can, if you're spending 50 euro for this field to get smart irrigation or to get uh, to get some precision farming advice, you're, you're saving in both ways. You're saving uh, the water, uh, so reduced water consumption, which is one of the major cost drivers. On the other hand, on top of this, you might get more yield. And I think the combination here basically clearly outweighs the cost. Great. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the technology of your satellite platform so we've already said that you know the, the existing there's some existing satellites which have you know infrared sensors and we've i think we mentioned land landsat landsat 8 now for memory those are pretty big satellites i think they're like several tons like how, how does your satellite compare in terms of you know things like size and capability and so forth yeah First of all, yes, we're new space, so we're tiny. Whereas Landsat 8, I think that it originally cost 850 million US dollars. If they would rebuild it, it would still be around 630 million US dollars. We're about 10% cheaper. No, just kidding. We're about cost-wise, I think we're somewhere less than 1%. Um, of those costs per satellite. We don't wait a ton, but we wait something like um, 25 kilograms. However, technology-wise, actually comparable. So the technology we have on board, at least part of the technology, the technology we actually need to have on board, is, is comparable. So what we've done at Fraunhofer over the last, so before we spun out from Fraunhofer, and um, what we've done at Fraunhofer for the last um, five years was developing technology, um, which is miniaturizing the, the approach so that you can actually fit all this into a lot smaller uh, smaller satellites, so shoebox size satellite, uh, so 16 liters, so a, a bit more than uh, your average average, uh, average tranche of, mm -hmm. of milk uh, if you buy it from the so from the supermarket. Well, this was some a bit of engineering effort, I must claim. If you think that you can get comparable performance from such a small satellite compared to um, a large satellite, it's obviously also no brainer. Then, for a fraction of the cost of the large satellite, you can then send dozens of these small ones into space and solve the the dilemma which you usually have with temporal versus spatial resolution. And that's actually also one of our differentiators. I would claim I don't know of any other company, and there, there are quite a lot of, a lot of competitors there which can bring that performance on such a small scale. And is that something you're doing? 
in-house because of that specialized knowledge or are you outsourcing it or is it like you built a sensor in-house and outsourcing the bus? So uh, we're actually trying to outsource as much as possible. The critical way, uh, the methodologies, how to integrate it and the methodologies, how to treat the data. This is what is critical and this is definitely in-house and it will stay in-house. The building a satellite bus, integrating a payload into a satellite bus, um, let's see, that's apart from certain, okay, let's call it secret recipes for, for certain problems, is something which has already been solved a few times. So we don't have the ego to say, okay, this needs to be happening in-house because what we want to do in the end, in the end is we would like to scale quickly. And we don't want to build fabs to, to build this manufacturing or to, to increase the manufacturing capability. But we are going to, and we have partnered. Uh, today, there was a there was a press release uh, with OHP. OHP is one of our investors. And there was a, a couple of weeks back, there was another uh, one where, where we're starting having corporation contracts, in this case, also with OHP, but also other companies to actually do this manufacturing process for us. Yeah, and I just realized, yeah, that's right, you announced the financing round today as well. And so congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And so how big a consult do you want to have eventually? What makes sense for you? This is a question which is at the moment still difficult to answer. I can tell you how many satellites we would need for daily coverage or twice daily coverage. But I think in the end, what we need to see is this is something we need to have a rough idea about, but this is not something where we're fixed. We're not an ESA program. We're not an ASA program, but we have 10 years development time and then needs to be in, in orbit for 10 years. But we can constantly adapt and we can scale. And that's one of the big advantages. So currently, we are assuming that with 28 satellites, we can go as far as daily for enough capacity to serve the whole globe. We would only need four satellites to basically, um, with a lower capacity, to serve daily to a limited amount uh, on the globe, but anyway on the globe. And uh, in the end, what we'll do is we're going to send up the first batch and we see how the market demand is developing. That's the beauty of it. We can scale it. So if there's more market demand, then we simply double the number of satellites. If there's less market demand, then, well, yeah, uh, uh, we don't double it. And in terms of, we, we already talked about spatial resolution and if I remember correctly, you said uh, it's it's 50 meters for your satellites. And I guess sort of the other in interesting metric is uh, what, what people call the swath, sort of like, you know, the, the width of your field of observation. So again, this since we're in the system design, it's, it's not completely fixed. It is comparable to what planet has. And I mean, the planet does. And so I guess one other related question while you're mentioning planet, or it could be Spire, or it could be some of the other, these other companies. If I remember correctly, infrared is just a sensor technology that's, let's call it, complicated or involved enough that it probably wouldn't make sense for you to ever, or you couldn't really go as a hosted payload on some other platform, right? I guess you really do need your own satellite because you have things like uh, cooling that's required and so forth. Is, is that correct? It is quite an involved, um, uh, involved technology, that's right. However, we are going on the International Space Station as a hosted payload on the external, on one of the external platforms. Um, to test it out. So for a demonstration mission, it's okay. But the way, since we're also talking about tasking and we need to have control over the satellite where it's looking at, I think a hosted pilot approach is difficult, especially considering the relatively harsh prerequisites uh, we need to have with the bus. We are at the Let's say at, at the limit of what a bus of this size can do. We go to a larger bus, but I'm not sure if this would then be feasible to, to have us uh, um, on this bus for, for the other operator. Especially if, I mean, if you're looking at telecommunication satellites, they usually like to fly high, whereas we obviously like to fly low for resolution reasons and therefore coverage reasons. So it's, it's difficult. We, we have seen a couple of potential candidates there, but none have really convinced us to be to be the partner to go with. So yeah, we probably have to go or we will go with it with our own fleet. This test on the uh, platform International Space Station, when is that going to happen? And sort of what is generally your, your plan? Sort of what are the next steps? And when, when are you going to have your first own satellite up there? Okay, so the general plan is this year, there, there are three things going to happen. First, we, we have a data platform in development and this data platform is going to be released. And this should be a first way to basically 
that's going to be the platform which, which will cover or host the, the, the temperature data from space with the best potential coverage. And this will be released somewhere uh, towards the mid of the year. Then we have uh, different pilots going on. One of these pilots is an airplane mission with a large uh, German entity, several large German entities involved. And this is more about, as you said before, has there been data before? Can you really nail down those numbers? And it's going to be to, to help us nail down those numbers. Uh, what the actually saving water is and uh, how much early we can actually see water stress and so on and so forth. And then we're going to have a handover to the, the team to deliver our pilot um, uh, to the International Space Station. Yeah, so that that's, let's say, maybe not this year, but in the next 12 months for sure. And the plan is then that by Q1, Q2 next year, um, we would have the mission design ready and the system design ready. We would then be ready for implementation. And from then it's, it's about 12 to 18 months to actually get our first batch of satellites into orbit. So um, I would claim that you can expect data in mid-2023. Okay, terrific. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, I know you've been through, Constellar has been through a couple of incubator programs, actually, funnily enough, we are, you are in the uh, Creative Destruction Lab based stream where I'm a mentor and we shall see each other again on tomorrow. Zoom tomorrow yes. <laughs> for the Creative Destruction Lab session. How, is, how is, has that experience been with, with incubators in, in general? Is that something you, you'd recommend to aspiring entrepreneurs or how do you feel about it? Yeah, so for, for us, it was a big help. Um, so initially we thought, okay, um, it's a ch it's a choice. Which accelerator are you going to take? And then you stick with this accelerator and that's it. And then you've learned everything. So far, we've been, I think, through 13 or, or 14 accelerator programs. And they all have their own value. Some of them focus on space entirely. Some of them focus only on the business model. Some of them focus um, uh, on, on impact. Some of them are just a network. Some of them make you ready for the next funding round. We're always happy to be accelerated. After being through a couple of accelerators, we can then, we could, spot which accelerator would be a good match for us. We set up a process where we said, okay, what are our weak points and how can we address those weak points? And do we need external input or we just need to work more? And for those who need external input, we then chose appropriate accelerator programs. And there's so many and there, there, a lot of them are so, so well organized. In particular, I would like to say that there, there are three accelerator programs which really guided us. The first one was the, the, the Fraunhofer Accelerator Program I had, which is a fantastic mm -hmm. opportunity. And it's not only for Fraunhofer teams, uh, but this is something which is really well organized and we learned quite a lot. Then Seraphim Space Camp was another one. Uh, we went to yep. London for um, eight weeks in 2019 and it was a fantastic approach. And those guys are really focused on everything which is upstream, downstream. They have fantastic mm -hmm. connections. And this was a real game changer for us. Then I must also say uh, ESA. ESA BIC is actually really good. It's it's a it's a light touch one, but the, the connections you get with ESA, if you can call it an accelerator, this business integration program, is also something which is extremely valuable. Uh, sorry, I, I said three, but I actually mean four. CDL mm -hmm. is actually another one, which is, let's say, an objective space. This is a very worthwhile um, uh, accelerator program, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. It's it's always great fun, and I certainly recommend Creative Destruction Lab to, to many startups that I come in touch with. I guess Fraunhofer, the Fraunhofer Institute, which is for people who don't know, that's a, you know, it's a very prestigious German research institute. Um, that's probably the reason you're based in, in Freiburg in Southwest Germany, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. Actually, there, there are five Fraunhofer Institutes uh, in Freiburg alone. There are 72 in, or 74 even. I'm, I'm not completely sure. I should know this, uh, but I, I don't. Um, so I think there are a bit more than 70 institutes in, in Germany, and they've close to 30,000 engineers and scientists um, uh, uh, working for them. And it's the largest research organization for applied science, uh, not only in Europe, but I think in the world. Um, and yeah, that's the reason. We, we all started here. Um, we know each other from Fraunhofer and um, at least two of the three co-founders know each other from Fraunhofer. Let's say it's a very good ecosystem 
uh, to start, even though there are obviously challenges like in any other ecosystem. And so you're based in Freiburg, which is sort of like 250,000 people, inhabitants, uh, very nice university city in southwest Germany. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty partial because I'm originally from Freiburg. <laughs> <laughs> However, I'd also be the first to admit that it's not sort of your traditional, uh, you know, space city or anything like that. I mean, it's basically you have most of the German space startups basically in the Munich area and then some in like a few other areas. Um, how has it been sort of being a little bit in a, in a, I don't want to say outside, but like in a different city, how, how has that been? Like, has it been positive, negative? Um, do, you, do you feel detached from the rest of the community or does it not matter because right now everything is online anyway? Or I don't <laughs> exactly. know. Right now it simply doesn't matter. That, that's the, that's the, the, the short of it. it. Right now it doesn't matter. It would matter a lot if we would do um, our own hardware development um, uh, and if we would do our own manufacturing of the satellites, then it would matter, then it would be very important to be close to the hubs in Berlin, close to the hubs in, um, in Munich, obviously. Um, but uh, with this kind of decentralized approach uh, we're having right now, especially since nearly everybody, everybody's in home office, it actually doesn't matter. And we are as close to Munich as we are uh, to, to Freiburg or as close to any other place. Um, we actually co-founded the Space Corporate of Europe uh, in Munich while being in, in, in Freiburg. Uh, so one of us then went over and uh, uh, signed. Uh, but I, I think that the, the ecosystem is getting stronger and it's, mm -hmm. it's well, as space should be, um, it is not really limited by space. And you, you, all of your team is in Freiburg. And by the way, how big is your team now? Total 17 people. That's, that's also including those people who work with us from the Fraunhofer side. Um, mm -hmm. And we have a full-time equivalent um, of around 12 at the moment. Uh, just to give you a, 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 a quick scale. So uh, in August last year, we've been four, uh, growing quickly. And growing quickly. And now you guys just got some money through the door. Are you, are you actively hiring at the moment? I, I believe for now, in the next months, we have all the, the people we need to... Um, uh, keep the core processes of Consular running. However, we are obviously always interested in top talent. We have a little database. Uh, yeah, um, as it happens, we like to hire slowly. So if you want to get in touch and you're not super desperate to get a job by the end of the month, please get in touch with us and uh, we're happy to to talk to you. Great, Max. Uh, we're down to the final last questions, which are always the same ones I asked. Um, so the first one is, if if you weren't doing Constella, that that company that you almost founded by accident, it seems. <laughs> what? But assume, assuming you were still interested in space, um, is there something else that you would be doing in space? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's a bit embarrassing, um, uh, but I, I would probably do computer games. Um, just before I, I did uh, Consular, I found Consular. I uh, had a little trade and I programmed the computer game together with, with my brothers. Um, it was also space-themed uh, computer game. Mm -hmm. It was kind of uh, Worms, the Worms series, but in space with nice gravitational effects. We sold a couple of thousand of copies and then Constellar started and we, we stopped it. I would probably doing a mix of research and entertainment. <laughs> that, that sounds terrific, actually. I really hope that people are working on, on that type of concept. And then uh, I guess sort of semi-related, the next question is, uh, which is always the final question is, do, I mean, do you like science fiction? And if yes, is there any favorite science fiction? It can be a book, it can be movies, it could be TV series. Yes, I, I, I do love um, science fiction. Um, I do love it, and um, but I, I can't claim there's one favorite um, uh, book I have or one favorite uh, uh, movie or a computer game or, or whatever. There's, there's been so much inspiration in, uh, in the science fiction uh, series, and I, I tend to, to say that um, I love the ones which are not trying to be completely science-based, because maybe mm -hmm. as a physicist, I'm always trying to, to find the gaps there, the logic, and, and that's kind of <laughs> destroying for me. 
Um, yeah. So I, I like the the ones which are maybe have your touch of fantasy, uh, and this touch of fantasy would be, for example, uh, uh, in the direction of. Uh, so let's say I, I would I would prefer Star Wars over. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Star Trek, uh, Foundation, or Star Trek. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. I can see a physicist dude like poking the holes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> really sorry. Great, Max. It's been a pleasure again. Congratulations on closing your financing round today, and best of luck uh, for the company going forward. And hopefully, we'll speak soon in the future. Yeah, soon. Hopefully, I've got something to tell you. Uh, Rafael, it was a was a pleasure. Thanks for for contacting me. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.